Open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Start at verse 10. God's commission once again. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you revealed your name to Moses. Help us to hallow your name. Help us not to take it in vain. Help me especially to hallow your name by what I say about it in this sermon. Give us the grace to understand what you revealed to Moses. And what you have further revealed to us. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus the Anointed One, who lives and reigns with you and your Spirit, one God and three persons, forever and ever. Amen. Well, clearly this statement of God's name is one of the high points of the biblical revelation, and therefore correspondingly controversial. The number of monographs alone that deal with the name of God is immense. My own brother-in-law has contributed one to the pile, his bachelor's degree thesis. I am not going to give you the contents of those books. Most of them are silly, in my humble yet accurate opinion. The name of God is... A verb. It is, in fact, the verb of being. And we will talk about that, what that means. The classical view, and the one that I am persuaded is correct, is that this means that God's name indicates fundamentally that He is. It's a name that signifies being. I am who. I am. And then God's being therefore underwrites his being with Moses, his being for his people, 
and therefore, of course, his being for us. Well, that's the view that I will present tonight. And there are very good reasons to believe that this is the correct view. We'll also talk briefly about, well, actually, we'll talk at length about why, if God's name is Yahweh, and this important, that it appears over 6,000 times in the, New Test- in the Old Testament, why does it never appear in the New Testament? And why are the only Christians today who use it fringe people with other strange beliefs? So we'll get into all of those questions that are, in one sense, outside our text. But in another sense, very important for understanding the name of God as Yahweh, what that says about who he is, and what that tells us about what we ought to call him, and how we ought to think of him. So once again, the context, God's presence with his chosen deliverer is guaranteed by his underived, self-existent, personal, and thus named being. God's presence with his deliverer and thus with his people is underwritten, is guaranteed by his underived, self-existent, personal, and therefore named being. Remember, we've seen this several times now, God commissions Moses, says, you will go and do this. Moses says, wrong guy, Lord, Uh uh-uh, who am I? Let's, Let's try a little harder, God, you, you can pick a better candidate. To which God's response is not, no, Moses, you're a great candidate. God's response is, I will be with you. What you need is my presence. And that's all you need. And then in this context of God being with Moses, Moses says, what is your name? And God then responds, not with one name, but with five, at least five descriptors of himself. Mystical speculation has centered around these names, at least in known documents from the time of the first century B.C. People have said, perhaps, that if you know the name of God, you can use it to do magic, You can exercise some kind of power over the Almighty if you know his name. Others have said you can't know God's name. Or to say the name of God would essentially bring ruin to the universe. Because to say his name, his true proper name, would indicate that you had mastered his being. And so on. So these kinds of speculations have flourished and continue to flourish. One of the commentators I read, writing as recently as 1983, and a Dutchman, I'm sorry to say, said that I am who I am means, what does it matter what my name is? I won't tell you my name, Moses. Pretty odd statement, given that the name God reveals is then used over 6,000 times in the pages of the Old Testament. No, the true significance of God's name is that he exists. That's what it means. His being is absolute and underived. So the first name God gives is I am 
who I am. Now, that's just what it appears to be. The verb of being in the first person, so I am, twice, and in the middle, the relative pronoun. Who, which, that. And Hebrew just has one relative pronoun. They don't have several like English does. So the baseline rendering, I am who I am, I am what I am, I am that I am, I am which I am. You can say it all of those ways. And it seems to me, and to the classical tradition in general, people like Thomas Aquinas, that this name means God exists. And he exists in such repletion, such fullness, that he says it twice. Any of us can say, I am. But we have to put something after that. I am a man. I am an American. I am a resident of Gillette. But God doesn't need to put anything after it. There's no limitations or qualifications. He simply is in an absolute, unqualified sense. The first translation of this passage, when the Old Testament was rendered into Greek by Jewish translators living in Egypt, between 300 and 150 B.C. The translation is called the Septuagint from the tradition that 70 different translators worked on it. The Septuagint translation of this verse renders God's name as I am he who is. The exact name then repeated in Revelation chapter 1. Him who is and who was and who is to come. If you want to know who God is, know that he exists in an underived, unlimited, unqualified way. He, no need to say he is a this, he is a that. No, he simply is. The name announces his self-existence. Then God goes on to say, and he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Clearly, this I am is a short version of I am who I am. And I am once can't mean what does it matter what my name is. No, I am means I exist. Being is mine. This name recurs a couple of times in the Old Testament, such as in Psalm 50. You thought that the I am was altogether like you. But usually, God describes himself not in the first person, or names himself not in the first person, I am, but in the third person as he is. So we could say when God says the name, he says, I am. When we say the name, we say, he is. He's not a God whose being is derived 
contingent. Because if that were the case, he couldn't be certain of being with Moses. How can God promise, I will be with you? Well, the answer is, he is. I can ask any one of you, will you be here next Sunday? And you can say, I intend to. I will, so far as it is in my power, arrange the circumstances of my life to be here. To which I can respond, can you tell me with absolute certainty that you will be here? And you would have to say, well, no, of course I can't do that. Anything could happen to me. I could very well be dead before next week. This building could be wiped out. Uh, Many, many lesser things could happen, such as a family member getting sick. My car encountering a problem when I went out to get in and drive to church. You name it, it could likely happen. We are contingent and therefore we're subject to accidents, to unplanned things, such as getting to church late. But God doesn't have that. That's what it means, part of what it means to say, I am. Moses, I will be with you because I'm not dependent on any outside factor or force. I perfectly control where I am, what I am, who I am, when I am. And so, God then reveals, after I am who I am, and I am, verse 15, Moreover, God said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers. This name is the third person form of the verb of being. Just as I am is the first person, so he is, is the third person singular. And that's what Yahweh is. Now, do you know anybody whose name is a verb? One of our chaplains I read in our chaplain prayer guide is a fellow with the first name B, like the insect, B-E-E. But that's almost like I am, but it's a noun, of course. I don't know anybody named run, walk, swim. We know, of course, the insect, whose name is a verb, the fly. and That's what it does. God's name is a verb. The meaning of the name is clear as fire. His name is he who is. And once you've said that, in one sense, that sums up everything there is to know about God. This name, Yahweh, he who is, occurs over 6,000 times in the 39 books of the Old Testament. As you know, God is called Yahweh all the time. Tens or dozens of times on every single page. And then you come to the page that says the New Testament and you turn the page and the name Yahweh never appears again. Why? What happened to Yahweh? Why is it banished from the pages of the New Testament? If this is God's memorial name forever, for all generations, why doesn't he use it after Matthew chapter 1? Well, the answer is 
historical. The Jewish folks, the Jewish people, decided sometime after the time of Malachi, sometime in that Hellenistic period or a little before, that Yahweh was too holy for ordinary use. Don't pronounce this name. And so they rendered it instead, they they spoke it aloud as the Hebrew word, my Lord, Adonai. And then the Jewish people who translated Exodus and the rest of the Old Testament into Greek systematically took out every one of those 6,000 occurrences of the name Yahweh and replaced them with the Greek word Kyrios, which is the Greek word Lord. So that tradition endures to this day. The Latin translation did the same thing. And when the first English translators began to work in the end of the 15th century, they followed that tradition. Thus, uh, the vast majority of you, probably all of you, are carrying a Bible that renders the name Yahweh as LORD in all caps. If you look at Exodus 3.15, for instance, you'll see that the text reads, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord, God of your fathers, and so on. Why do we do that? We do that because... Jewish readers of the text 2,300 years ago started calling him Lord instead of Yahweh. It's a historical aberration in one sense, and yet the thing that really made it go mainstream is that the New Testament writers followed the same custom. They refer to God as Lord all the time. But specifically, of course, they refer to Jesus as Lord. Now, what's the downside of this custom? If you take a name and replace it with a title, what does that do? Well, if somebody has a personal name, then that indicates, well, that they're personal, that they have personal attributes and characteristics. We very rarely give individual names to things that lack some kind of personality. If I told you that I had named every chair in this room, you would regard me as... Something happened to my brain at some point. That's not normal to name inanimate objects. The exception proves the rule. What do we name? We name ships. And apparently, I've never spent time on a ship, but ships tend to develop something like a personality that leads the people on them to say, it's this ship. This ship does that. And so a ship gets a personal name. Human beings get a personal name. We name our pets and some of our animals. And we don't do more than that. God having a personal name and not just a title, Lord, means that he's not a force or a thing, but a someone. So God is a title of essence. It's the exact counterpart of man. 
Most, many of us in here could say, I am a man. Many could say, I am a woman. But none of us could say, I am a God. But similarly, as will come up in the text of Exodus, who is Yahweh? Well, he's the God of the Hebrews. Right? To just say he's a God is insufficient. In Egypt, where there are many gods, you have to specify which God you're talking about. And so, he has a name. Just as, of course, the Egyptian gods had names. So because he is, he can promise. Because he is a person, he can keep that promise. God reveals his name as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, as well as I am who I am, I am, and Yahweh. He gives his name as the one who is in covenant with his people. Not, I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham. Abraham is not dead, he's still alive. Human covenants end at death. Because we have found no way of tracking down someone after death and forcing them to keep their covenant. Doesn't matter what you sign, if you die, the contract is null and void. Sometimes leading to odd consequences, I asked my banker, if I was 87 years old and applying for this mortgage, would you loan me money for 30 years? And she said, absolutely. We're required to by law. But that's stupid, I said. Doesn't matter, she says. I would lend you money for 30 years if you were 90 years old. Well, God is a lot older than 90 years, right? But we can trust him implicitly because he can track you down after death. He can keep his promise to you after death. That's why Jesus went to this passage to prove the resurrection to the Pharisees, or to the Sadducees. God, it's not that God was the God of Abraham. Even now, in Moses' day, 500 years after Abraham's time, God continues to be the God of Abraham. So God is not just he who is. He's the God your fathers knew, the God who has a history with your family. And it's a history in which he's always been faithful, always been perfect, always been exactly what you needed him to be. But not always what you wanted him to be. So God reveals this name. My name is, in the first person, I am. In the third person, he is. Names are to be transliterated, carried across as the same set of sounds, rather than translated, carried across as the same meaning. And so the name is Yahweh. By a historical accident, though, when Jesus came, no one was using the name Yahweh. And thus, if you've seen part of, hopefully you haven't seen all of Monty Python's Life of Brian, there's a sketch in there where they mock the Jewish people for their reluctance to say the name Yahweh, or as it's also pronounced, Jehovah. You get Jehovah by taking the vowels of Adonai and putting them on the consonants of Yahweh, and it comes out Jehovah. Anyway, in the time when the New Testament was written, 
Yahweh was not used. But, there is a massive but here. What is that? Well, the name Jesus, or Yeshua, incorporates the first half of Yahweh. It's a name that's not one verb, but two verbs. It's a name that means Yah saves, or he who is saves. And you can ask all kinds of people whether a shorter name, a shortened name, is more intimate. You can ask Jonathan's whether they prefer John, Douglas's whether they prefer Doug, Elizabeth's whether they go by Beth, and so on. Often you'll find that the people closest to them are the ones who use the shortened name. Well, if you say the name Jesus, you are still saying the name Yahweh. Jesus carries Yahweh's name. Just the first half of it, but the name nonetheless. So it's appropriate to call him Lord. It's also appropriate to call him Yahweh. The great saints of the Old Testament called on God as Yahweh, and we certainly can too. But why is it that the Christian groups that do that are inevitably very odd? I was driving down the road one day, I think I was in North Carolina or Tennessee, and I saw a church up on the hill that had the name Yahweh in its church name. Yahweh's house, something like that. Well, that arrested my attention. I had never seen that on a church sign before. But generally, people who do that have some odd elements in their theology. Why is that? Well, it's because titles are more intimate than names. Some titles are more intimate than names. How do I say that? Well, mom and dad. They're titles. But your mom and dad will always be mom and dad to you. You wouldn't feel, you know, if let's say your parents are named Jack and Helen, you wouldn't feel that you've achieved a new level of intimacy on the day when you get to call them Jack and Helen. Even as I was writing this sermon, Sass came up to me and said, Daddy, is your name Caleb? And I said, well, yes, but I'm your daddy, and I will always be your daddy. I wouldn't feel that I had gotten closer to any of my children if they were to start calling me by my first name. Or by my last name, or my middle, or any of my names for that matter. The title is more intimate than the name, and what's the name of God that's revealed to us in the New Testament? Father. That's why 